Thomas, thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate that. Thanks well, for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Hey, absolutely. So we're really curious what you're up to with your latest startup. Um, we know you have a checkered history. You worked on Wall Street for quite some time. From what I know, your latest startup is called Hedge Fund Telemetry. That's Maybe correct. you can tell us a little bit more about what you do now and what you experience in your career. Okay, well, let's start. I, um, I worked uh, on the, the sell side uh, for Morgan Stanley in the 90s, and I covered uh, middle market hedge funds, and I ended up in 2000 uh, going to work for one of my clients uh, to be the head trader for one of their, actually two of their hedge funds. Uh, it was mostly a long-only uh, firm, but they did have some hedge fund exposure, and I was happy to join. Uh, it it also happened to be the top of the tech market, and they were a growth-type long-only firm, and we had these hedge funds. So one of the things that, that was amazing is that I learned uh, firsthand how hubris uh, fell into uh, an investment process and really almost ruined the firm. Actually, let's just say it didn't ruin it and completely, but it really peaked. Uh, they had $15 billion under management and the hedge funds did very, very well because we were able to short, but they were still buying you know, technology, healthcare, biotech, uh, all at the peak. And, you know, when the, they see Yahoo at $200 and it goes to a hundred and they're like, we got to buy more. And in the hedge fund, we were just looking at it saying, this is things going a lot, a lot lower. So as it turned out, uh, the founder of the firm, uh, unfortunately got cancer and the firm sort of went through an implosion and, that was around 2001. I launched my own hedge fund with another partner. And this is, you know, the tech bubble had burst, 9-11. Uh, it was a month after 9-11. And, you know, trying to raise money in Los Angeles, where I lived at the time, was just impossible. And we had we ran the fund for a year. We had great 40% uh, uh, returns. Uh, however, my partner... Uh, his wife got pregnant again, and he said, look, I've got to go back and make some real money and stable money. Uh, so he went to a, another mutual fund. So I was sort of left saying, okay, what am I going to do? And I was recruited to move to Greenwich, Connecticut, and work for a startup hedge fund, uh, some uh, guys that were very, very high, highly regarded uh, from, coming from SAC, they were uh, the top lieutenants for Steve Cohen. And so it was a very exciting time. Uh, I moved my wife and three daughters to Greenwich. It was uh, quite a change in scenery, but we really fit in. And I worked for the fund until 2011. And we got caught up in the insider trading scandal that uh, Steve Cohen was a involved in with Diamondback and uh, another one in, in Boston. Our firm was raided by the FBI in sort of a calculated move to bring publicity for Preet Bharara. And I, I'll, I'll tell you that this was, uh, I remember the day vividly, it was a Monday. And on Friday, the Wall Street Journal, after the market had closed, said, 
and they had this report saying, you know, these expert networks is this insider trading ring and they're, they're circling some hedge funds. And our firm really didn't use expert networks that much. And I thought, okay, I wonder who's going to get hit. So as it turned out, Monday morning, I go into the office. I was running late. I, I commuted to New York City because uh, our office was there and we had one in, in Greenwich as well. And I'm late. And all of a sudden, I get in the elevator and these two FBI agents with the FBI jackets, I mean, it was like right out of TV, uh, are in there. And uh, they said, you know, what floor? And I said, 17. And they already had pushed it. And so I was like, okay, this is going to be interesting. So I get there. We have this glass conference room. I get there and everybody's in the glass conference room. So I'm like, my heart's racing. It's every, it's just like, okay, this is going to change everything. So I'm not going to go into all the details, but at the end of the day, uh, my one of my partners, senior partners, uh, was indicted over a year later. And he was convicted and then... Uh, he was exonerated uh, fully, and even the Supreme Court uh, decided not to take up the, the challenge to uh, retry him. And I'll, I'll be very honest, uh, we had an analyst that we had fired uh, almost a year before all this that uh, was communicating with another firm on their Yahoo account and getting ideas. So it was about eight people removed from that so they were getting it from other people and then he would put that info into our um into our analysis now the the thing that was really uh crazy is that the the idea that, that they didn't have any specific thing uh, on us but what they did is they took all of our records and all of our our emails and they found uh a, a, an idea back in July of 2008. And remember, that was right before the market was about to implode. And we had already seen a lot of problems happening in the tech sector. I mean, when you have a uh, market uh, uh, in the, fi the financial sector where they're laying off people, it wasn't hard to spot that, that there was gonna be technology weakness. So as it turned out, I was the person who came up with the idea to sell short Dell. It wasn't that hard. We knew sales were going down. Intel had just announced bad earnings. So we started this, this short position in Dell. The fundamental analyst who covered hardware started to uh, inject some of that info of what, was, what he had heard into it. And as it turned out, they, you know, they, they indicted my partner on that particular trade. And it, it, the trade worked. It wasn't hard when everything was imploding, when Lehman Brothers blew up, that we covered our short, we made money. And uh, it wasn't a tremendous amount of money that we made considering we were a $5 billion fund. But that day when the FBI showed up, everything changed. And I, I just knew that uh, I've had a great reputation. I was one of the senior traders at the firm. I did a lot of market sentiment and technical work on every one of our positions, global markets. And 
as it turned out, it was very, very tough on me uh, personally, uh, financially. Uh, we really just got caught out with uh, this unexpected news, and the and the firm shut. You just can't continue. Uh, the, yeah, the story. Get nervous. Story. It, it sounds like the story straight out of Billions, right? The TV show. Yeah, well, there's there's a constant battle between um, the FBI and the prosecution, and in Billions, you feel like they do something dirty. Um, but you never really know, is it actually illegal, right? So obviously the show doesn't go into detail. It's, it's an entertaining show, right? Right. And I think, it's, but a similar issue, I think a lot of people have with what's going on with insider trading laws. A lot of us, including me, believe that should never be a crime, shouldn't be illegal in the first place. It's ridiculous. But it's the law, it's the law, right? But it's, it's, it's very tricky to find those definitions. And I think this is, has been going on for a long time. When is actually really when we, when we see a clear-cut case of insider trading because as you said there's information that comes from many different sources and when do you make that decision to put a trade on right that could be 15 different people who talk to you over the course of years and then you suddenly say okay now i'm making this trade but often you don't you're not even aware especially as you say it comes through many different layers so even if it was an insider source that gave you guys that information it doesn't mean it would have any impact right you might have ignored it most of the time and then this time, because it was layered into lots of other preceding information, it was actually more relevant. Um, was that, and I'm not really familiar with that case uh, at the time, what happened with the expert network? Was, did that lead to many different indictments? What, what happened? You just uh, ten, tangentially mentioned that earlier. Well, as it turned out, the, the expert network uh, was not a source for the information that we got with, with Dell. Uh, and again, it was like eight people removed and, and people we had no knowledge of. And we just heard through the grapevine of, of what we heard. And, you know, just remember any analyst out there, whether it's from a, a hedge fund, a mutual fund, uh, a, from Citibank, Goldman Sachs, they're all looking for some sort of edge or some sort of data point that will uh, be part of their mosaic. And remember, I'm a tech technical person. And so the, the, the indicator that I was using was uh, from Tom DeMarc. And as it turned out, you know, the, the, um, the, you know, it was, everybody was exonerated. I never was had any phone calls, any conversations with anybody, because if they did, they would say, oh, you're looking at this little red number going down on a weekly chart for Dell. That's all I knew. And that probably was would have just blown their case. So they, they looked, they, it was a very political minded thing. I think um, SAC was more involved with ex expert networks uh, back then than we were. So it, it just was, look, our guys used to work for Steve Cohen. They thought, oh, get these guys, they'll flip for some reason and and offer you know up Steve. And and look, I have a lot of respect for Steve and, and his team. I think he's built a great firm. And uh, I, it, seems, it seems very political, right? It's a Southern district in New York, right? The, yeah. the prosecution that seems extremely active in that area, very politically driven. Well, when you have the the press um, already there when the FBI shows up, uh, yeah. it, you know, <laughs> That's a bit of a guess what? <laughs> exactly. So it was it was a tough time, as it turned out. And I'll, I'll just, you know, go. It's a good war over. story, though. I love it. Uh, yeah, let, let me tell you, you know, you, you sometimes experiences uh you, you learn experience through very difficult times. And yeah. as it turned out, I ended up a year later going to work for 
one of the founders family office and uh, it was a small family office uh, i was the head trader did a lot of analysis i wore a lot of hats and it was really really enjoyable and at that time i started to come up with an idea because i put out research among our old firm and within this family office that I got a lot of information from different sources, uh, from the sell side, from derivative traders every day. Uh, I looked at technical stuff in the market, sentiment, and I was putting that out. And I thought, what if I did this for more people out there, more funds? What if I set up a business where I sent it to some of the top hedge fund people out there or mutual funds or, or just even you know traders out there? And so, as it turned out, I didn't do it right away. Uh, the family office uh, trading aspect uh, changed, and the founder decided that he'd rather trade less, enjoy his life more. He was financially, you know, over the top successful. And so, I I raised some money for some private equity funds. I raised fifty million dollars for Alibaba uh, pre IPO, which uh, it was like fifteen dollars a share for Alibaba. That did really oh, well. You held these shares. Uh, like, you know, just a little. You bought them yourself. Well, just a little interest, not yeah, you know, not enough, but uh, it yeah. it worked out. So yeah. then in two thousand seventeen, I was asked to go to work for uh, a friend at a small sell side boutique in New York City, and this was a broker dealer. And I was putting. They said, "Can you put out your research again?" to some of our clients. So I started doing it and I sent it to about 10 or 20, 15 of my friends who were large hedge fund managers. And so we had large pension, you know, CalPERS and all CalSTRS and all these big pensions, BlackRock and big mutual funds that I was uh, talking to all the time, but I made no money and I really kind of hated it. So what I did was I started sending it out because a trader, one of my old financials trader said, buddy, you're not making any money there. Uh, why don't you put it out there on Twitter that you'd offer your research out and then set up a newsletter? So I did. And I, I put it out there like anybody want this for free. And I had that day a thousand direct messages on Twitter. And so I called my website friend and I said, I, I've got to get something going on immediately. So I, I ran it for free for a while. I built up a nice following. Uh, I started going on Real Vision. Uh, Raul, uh, Raul Paul and, uh, and Grant Williams are, are old friends. And so I, I did these interviews. And I, I, I will be honest, the first couple of interviews I did, I, I swear, I, I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing here. But it, it actually worked out. I built this following. I offered it to people all over the world. And now I have this business where I put out every day a couple notes that look at market sentiment, charts with DeMarc indicators, screens, the way a hedge fund manager would look at things. I have trade ideas. I have a lot of macro top down. I cover a lot. And I, I have a, I, of course, I'm in the US and I have a US uh, equity market focus, but I like to look at how all the pieces evolve together. And in, in hedge fund telemetry, uh, it, the, the name telemetry comes from my love of Formula One auto racing. And I've been a big fan for a long time.
And in the early 90s, maybe late 80s, they started to, the cars, uh, the teams would start putting sensors on every piece of the car, the, from the brakes to the fuel to the engines, everything in there. And they would go around the, the lap and they'd go by the pits and wirelessly, all that data would be transferred to their computers. They would crunch it all together. And then the next time around, they would say, hey, Alon uh, or Ayrton, uh, move your brake balance on a sign. And so that, that's now to today uh, very common for hedge fund, or excuse me, for uh, Formula One teams. They have just bazillions amount of data that go through. It's all transferred through wirelessly back to factories and they analyze it. So I would analyze all this data and then take the most relevant info and put it out there to my firm so they could basically balance the portfolio uh, the way I see it uh, or add it to their, uh, their thesis or their mosaic of how they're seeing things. So that's what I do now with hedge fund telemetry. I have so many people that read it and they, they, that it's not necessarily, hey, buy this, sell that at this exact time, but it's like, hey, this is the this is the overall theme that I'm seeing right now in the markets, and it's sometimes, uh, oftentimes, very contrarian. So we can think of it maybe as an expert curated Bloomberg version, right? So Bloomberg is this massive amount of financial data that you can acquire, including technical data. But it's also, it's very difficult to find your focus, what actually stands out, what's important. And you can go to mainstream news media, but that's a very difficult story. And then there's like stock tweets, and there's a couple of specific places, forums on the web. But well, how long is, is a newsletter you would send out every day? Is it is it like two pages? Um, how, how curated is it? Is it literally two tweets? <laughs> I, I wish it was two pages. Um, it, it takes, I, it goes out midday. And I, I like sending out something midday because most sell-side firms, uh, the, the brokers, technical people would, would write it the day before and then it goes out in the morning and they read it. And overnight, everything has sort of changed. The futures are up, down, whatever. And so I like to get a taste of what's happening that day. And I, I find it most relevant for people to read midday so they can make adjustments towards the end of the day because I think that's where prices uh, really matter. How do you how do you keep different time horizons in in mind? And you know, we 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 know that hedge funds have a quarterly time horizon, right? And then there's a daily horizon. We we need to we want to position ourselves for tomorrow or what might happen next week. Next week, you know, the market is closed, for instance, on Monday. And then there's also a long-term horizon that we know from value investing that goes more into, well, I've seen this trend, now I'm just waiting for this catalyst, or I've already seen the catalyst, I went and, and did this trade, and but I'm waiting to get out of this trade. So there's a bunch of different time horizons. How do you choose which one to focus on? Because it seems like a lot of stuff that isn't the daily news, it's it's just noise, right? It, it, it doesn't have any impact when you look at stuff six months ago. It's like, whoa, crypto went up, went down, nothing really happened in the end. Right. The, the, the problem I find with um, business news, such as, um, I mean, really from newspapers to CNBC, they're talking about what's working today. And they're talking about, look at it from an apple tree. Here are all the apples on the tree right here. You're not going to get rich uh, with the apples that are ready to be picked or be sold, basically. You're going to get rich when you're planting something in the ground 
and all of a sudden you start to see the green shoots come up. That's where you're going to get, you're going to really make money. So they're really more of an after the fact. And so what I do is I like to say, hey, look, I'm seeing a, a trend that's going to start to develop here. I, I was very early last fall with uh, energy stocks from and energy stocks uh, yep. had a tremendous run over 100 percent. And so I, I'm more of a let's plant something in the ground, uh, an idea, and then let's see how it works over time. And sometimes that that will work. I mean, it doesn't. Well, so let's just say sometimes it doesn't work, and we can see that early and and pluck that. And then there's times where you know we can hold something for an extended period. As far as time horizon, I look at various time frames, and I like to see when they get in sync. Uh, my go-to trading time frame is a 60-minute bar chart. So I look at that as, okay, these are just swing trades of a, a nice place to position uh, if I'm adding a position or taking something off. Sometimes when we're in sideways markets, they work beautifully. Uh, I, I look at daily and weekly. And when I see the daily and weekly time horizons get oversold or as they are now a bit overbought on various indicators, uh, I mean, basics like RSI, some you know custom formatted MACD uh, charts that I use, I, I, I get a better sense that what will come next. And uh, one of my old partners at the hedge fund used to say, I would be two weeks early all the time on everything, on, on bigger moves. And what was nice, because he was a fundamental analyst, he could start doing his fundamental work uh, when I started to see uh, those things to start to, to develop. And, I, and that's really what I have tried to do with hedge fund telemetry. I try to give people uh, a sense where they can uh, integrate some of the work that I do into their own process. I'm not trying to you know, say, hey, my process is perfect or, or the end all you know, go to it's, I'm a guru, whatever. It's, it's more, this is what I'm seeing when market bullish sentiment gets up at these high levels. And then when it goes down, it's where you want to buy it or, you know, or sell it here, buy it here. It's pretty simple. For example, uh, a couple of weeks ago, all you could hear about were lumber prices were, you know, skyrocketing. Uh, my bullish sentiment on lumber was at 96% bulls. It's uh 22% today. Last March, or excuse me, March of 2020, my S&P bullish sentiment was at 4% bulls, and it reached 90% recently, and now it's starting to diverge a little lower. So I think that we're seeing some topping action happen in the equity markets right now. So I use a lot of different time frames. I Sometimes when the dailies are just trending up, I'll wait for the weekly signals to give me a better clue. Yeah, I want to pick your brain on... Uh the cryptos, you know, with right. crypto so much happened. And I always said that I, I always thought of crypto as a failed experiment simply because it was supposedly the an internet payment system and it doesn't work for that, right? It's extremely slow. You wait hours for your transaction to go through. There's very high fees involved. It's just, it's failed. And that's what I thought in 2013. But what I didn't realize is that the store value storage idea actually took off and it took off massively. And now we, we have full 
you know, I feel like 90% into this mania and the, the, the whole market cap of crypto, um, of BTC, of Bitcoin is very high. Um, and it's, 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 it's a massive bubble from the way I look at it. Obviously, there's an underlying revolution and that's good, but to, that, that we store massive amounts, maybe trillions in, in, in value into these crypto assets, it seems kind of random because there's so many other cryptos um, that you could actually generate other tokens. What do you think of the, the crypto space? Um, has it reached um, a limit? Where will this mania go in the next couple of years? Uh, boy, it's um, there's a lot there. So I, I'm not, uh, I've never invested in crypto. Uh, I have, what I do do every day is I analyze the price action in mostly Bitcoin, Ethereum. And I can say that in 2017 when it was going up and it was a mania and and everybody you know relatives were asking me you know should i get in and it's at 16,000 and like uh, you know no uh it's a little late here maybe it'll go higher and you and also another thing you, you saw so many outrageous price targets back then and and so when you see these high you know, oh, it's going to a hundred thousand. You know, by the end of the year, and you know, there's famous uh, strategists that that were were pointing out these you know crazy targets. I, you know, you just kind of get the sentiment when when that happens. You know, sometimes one really simple sentiment reading I always get is when you see price targets on anything go sky high, well above something after it's had a huge move, or let's just say. When something's going down and they start making these much much lower price targets that's a that's a sign right there uh my view on on the fundamentals of of crypto i have always been a little skeptical because uh my my view is that uh this is a private uh, asset something that was created privately uh with zero regulation and I've always thought that you would have more regulation come into the space. And, and in some places, uh, you could just see it just get shut down. And, and you know, obviously that hasn't happened. China's doing a very, very uh, big push right now through a lot of my sources. It's coming from the highest levels of government, which uh, you can imagine who that is, uh, that they're, uh, you know, clamping down on, on not just crypto trading, but mining. And I think that's also partly the environmental issues with, with crypto trading. Uh, so let's just go back to 2017. When I was writing uh, my note in, it was December 18th, 2017, I put out a chart of Bitcoin and I said, look, we have a DeMarc sell countdown 13 here. If, it, if you're involved in this, uh, which I'm not, uh, this is a sell signal. And it was basically the day after it peaked. Now, I also look at wave theory. And Elliott wave theory, uh, it usually the you know people are tuning out right now, but no, it's actually very simple. And I don't really subscribe to the all the Fibonacci uh, levels and all that, that from the very most strict uh, sense. Yep. Yep. But what I do think is really important, and it's easy for people to understand, is if you go to Wikipedia and you look up Elliott wave, and they have the personalities of what each wave. What's happening in each wave? Now, for example, in wave one, uh, nobody really believes it. And then, you know, you have a pullback. So, oh, you got to sell it. You got to stay short. Then it goes up again. It, it surpasses wave one. That's wave three. People are accepting it. And then 
it's it's really gaining steam. And then you have a small pullback and the, and you you shake out some people. And then wave five is when, oops, hold on, um, ripping out my earbuds here. Wave five is when you have total acceptance. Uh, everybody's talking about it. It's on CNBC all the time. Uh, your relatives are asking about it. That's the terminal wave. And I think right now we've seen a five wave move higher in Bitcoin. And I, you know, I, I've seen, I'll tell you that this last six months, uh, actually more like nine months, uh, I've seen several of my DeMarc 13s on the daily time frame trigger and you see a 10 or 20% pullback. And for Bitcoin people, that's, you know, that's a, a gift. And they've, they, they laugh at the DeMarc indicator saying, you know, how, how could you be so stupid? You know, this, this is a perfect thing. Just hold on to it. But now we had a weekly one towards the highs, uh, a little over 60,000. And we've seen a, you know, monstrous pullback. Now, the thing that really bothers me uh, is that you, you have this environment over the last year of people, it's this get rich you know, I want to get rich. I don't want to, you know, I want to turn one penny into a dollar. And so they're buying up these meme uh, crypto assets. The Elon Musk tweets about something and Dogecoin goes up. And, you know, it was a $90 billion market cap uh, of Dogecoin. And, and I don't know if I'm saying it right, but it went up and he was on Saturday Night Live. Everybody was expecting him to tout it. He kind of did. Uh, then he called it a, a hustle. And the thing dropped. Now, it dropped so much that that's a lot of money. If you think about it, that was, you know, $45 billion wiped out immediately. And, and the amount of leverage that, that these brokers and exchanges are allowing the retail customer to use is just egregious. And it's, it's wrong. And so I think that it's, it's a very difficult place when you see these meme type garbage crypto things going up, shit coins as they're called. <laughs> and that's where, where people get hurt. And that's where the regulation's going to come down and they're going to clamp down on it. And look, China's clamping down because they don't want uh, competition for the digital their own digital currency. Uh, I think the Fed's going to have their own digital currency. The China's way ahead of them. And I think they're going to try and catch up. And I don't see... Um, the mania in Bitcoin, uh, going back to the you know the 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 same thing that what we've had. Uh, I mean, look, it could go higher. It, it certainly can. My 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 view right now is it's on the first wave down. Nobody believes it. People are still, you know, oh, you just got to hold it. And I'm thinking to myself, you just had a almost fifty percent pullback from the highs, and you're just sitting there saying, oh, it's fine. It's Bitcoin. This is what it does. If I had a 50% pullback and I'm managing money for an institution or a fund, I'm out of a job. I'm going to be just murdered here. Oh, but it's up so much for the year. It doesn't matter. But the bottom line is right now that that, that I think the, the buy and hold uh, mentality for crypto trading is the wrong thing. People should be trading around their positions, taking profits at, at opportunities, uh, not being too greedy to say I'm going to put all my money in. I'm not going to. I'm going to put. I'm going to go on leverage. I'm going to buy garbage coins just because somebody on Twitter says it's a good thing to do. Look, I I, I kind of like the idea of an alternative asset like like crypto, 
but I think it's still, you know, there's still a lot of risk out there. So that's really um, my true view on, on crypto. And, and I'm, look, I'm thrilled for people that have made money. And I, it, it pains me to think of all the people that have, have held on or bought too high and have been wiped out here. It's just, it's, a, it's, it's, it's very difficult. I think it's a very thorough, very smart analysis of what's going on with crypto. And I feel we, we, there is, there, with all these manias, there's obviously underlying factors that make a lot of sense, right? It's, it's, it's great to have um, a currency. We all were very worried and maybe are still worried about inflation. It's great to have a currency that's independent of that, that has a good ceiling about how, how I think it's about 2% um, of the potential added new tokens within the Bitcoin um, universe on the same chain. So I think there's a lot of, like the internet, right? There's a lot of good things about it that make a lot of sense, but it, it has gone into an extreme and it's just tunnel vision, just like the internet bubble 20 years ago. And I think that's a real problem as you just pointed out, but there's something good that's gonna come out of it. And the idea that we, we get an easier um, way to, to store value, but also transact on the internet, that's absolutely needed. And a democratic access to this worldwide without any restrictions is absolutely needed. And it's, it's a, it's, it's dramatic that this hasn't happened in the last 25 years of the internet because it's the number one commercial marketplace but we don't really have an unregulated or it could be regulated but a global currency hasn't taken off yet i don't think it will be bitcoin but it, lots of these ethereum 30 uh, 3.0 or it might be maybe it's dogecoin one of them will take off right whatever that is it might not be on the one that we know right now but there's a lot of good in it. It's just not the idea is not to buy one one coin and hope that it always goes up. That's ridiculous. Right? Yeah, That's, look, sounds I, like 2017. I, I think the success of of Bitcoin is not necessarily in the price going up. I think the the success of Bitcoin is when there's regulation and it becomes more accepted through uh, other channels. Uh, or let's just say, uh, I don't I don't necessarily think it's it's the greatest way of transacting business. But let's just say when when uh, more brokerage firms, um, more regulation allow uh, Bitcoin to be traded more actively, I think the price will, will more or less uh, stabilize. I mean, look, it's a store of value that has a, a limited amount of coins, they say. And that's why you have all these new coins that, that pop up and people say, oh, that's the next big one. It's gonna, it's gonna go up and I wanna get rich real fast. And, and yeah, but that, the that, blockchain that, currency is, is highly inflationary. So that's the problem that people don't see, right? We see this one sector, but there is millions of other coins out there that we've never heard of and they're being created every day. All of us can do it. It takes five minutes and we can, we can yeah. create our own currency. And that's the ridiculous part. I think that's just sinking in this, this this truth. One thing that, that you touched on, I think this is really interesting, is that central banks and countries are coming up with their own digital currency. And when we hear this, we see immediately, oh, wow, now the central bank is printing the money, right? they're printing it digitally, they don't have to go through paper anymore. I think they only go through so much paper anyways, but they give it directly to consumers. It sounds a bit like, okay, UBI and massive inflation, we're going to see this based on digital currency. That's what this immediately the alarm bells going off in many investors' heads. Do you think that's going to happen or we go into more deflationary scenario? We see this all over the place now that technology and software is eating the world. So many, many, many things that we considered hardware and potentially inflationary, they just are not inflationary anymore. There's a few exceptions, healthcare and construction, but everything else we see in the world is eaten by software and just drops in price every 12, 18 months. 
Well, I'll point out one thing first before I get into the inflationary, deflationary uh, thought. One of the problems if you do have a, a digital currency uh, run by the government, and let's just say they're able to see basically what everybody has, what their assets are, how much they have in the bank, so to speak. Uh, that, I mean, Bitcoin was part of a, a, a movement to hide assets from exactly the, the governments. So there's a, there's a change in narrative with that. Uh, so I, I, I think that, that, that there's, there are problems with a government digital currency as far as privacy. Uh, you know, maybe gold will come back to be uh, something that will be a bigger asset. I'm not a gold bug. I'm long a little gold right now, but I'm not, you know, I'm agnostic and is gold. I, I buy it, I sell it, it goes up, goes down. I try to find the right direction. Uh, but you're right. Uh, software is a deflationary tool. And if you think about, think about the iPhone here, a lot of messages here. How many businesses, how many segments in technology has the iPhone taken away and created? Because the iPhone is the, in my opinion, the greatest uh, technology advancement over the last 20 years. I mean, the internet, and then you really, you had this iPhone that came and, and you were able to look on the internet because you, you could on a Blackberry, so to speak, the, the browsers were terrible, but you could. But this changed it all. It was like having a computer right here. Uh, you don't have fax machines anymore. Uh, camera, you don't need a camera. You don't need video camera. You've got it right there. Uh, you don't even need a computer. You have a phone. Uh, it's built in, uh, you know, you just look and think about what they've created. You know, Facebook was just a, a, a business on a desktop and then they got it together and they figured out how to do it through wireless or through, uh, through the phones, through mobile. That's what took their business up. I mean, Instagram, they paid a billion dollars for it's worth, you know, more than Facebook um, standalone company today. You have YouTube on here now, so people can do videos and put it on there. Um, you have Uber. Uber wouldn't have existed. Lyft, nope. DoorDash, nope. No, but none of these would really exist uh, without this technology. So you've really eliminated a lot of core businesses and you've created a lot of core businesses. Now, if you want to talk about inflation right now and deflation, you have two sides right now. The, the Fed is saying it's transitory. Uh, there are some people saying it's structural. I fall into the middle of this. I think there are transitory aspects that we're seeing right now. Look, we've never been in a pandemic, so it's very difficult to say uh, with, with any economist out there saying, well, this is what's, you know, we're seeing prices go up in commodities and it's never going to end. I think that that's, uh, that's not necessarily true. Uh, but I also think that funny that the Fed and the government are paying people to stay home. They're paying people stimulus. Uh, the unemployment benefits are extended and extended. And you're seeing a labor shortage. You're seeing a labor shortage with the unemployment rate at 6%. It was just at 
4%. There's a lot of people out there that are saying, you know what, I'm cool staying home or better yet, I'll go back to work, but pay me under the table. I've seen that happen. Uh, at, at, uh, it was on the news recently, a lot of you know, restaurants. Oh yeah, I, I still want to get my government stimulus, but I don't want to come back and be a waiter or do whatever or cook um, if you, unless you pay me under the table. So you're seeing this 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 dynamic here that the the government. What if since wages haven't gone up in ten years, we've seen no wage growth through this whole period of of exceptional growth in in the world and the markets. That's the one thing in the economy that hasn't really gone back. What if the government is paying people to force competition with employers? to have to force wages higher to incentivize people to come back. Now, I think that's, that's, uh, that's not transitory. That is, uh, that is uh, structural inflation in wages. And I think when, when things, look, I, I have a thesis that- But it's that, more complicated than this, right? So when you say wages haven't risen, that's true. But it's also this good portion of, of employees that make a ton of money. You know, I live in Silicon Valley. People easily make 200, 250,000 with three, four years of experience. And that's not winning the lottery. That's that's a regular, slightly advanced base salary, right? There's some options inside, but mostly it's cash. So that's a ton of money. And those have risen spectacularly over the last 10, 20 years. And I think what's really strange is that we have these low-end jobs, so to speak. They're, they're, they're not crazy dangerous jobs, but they are menial jobs. And they haven't moved at all. And there's a lot, there's a layer above that, there's a few layers above that that haven't moved in a long time. And maybe it's time to automate that away. A lot of people make that argument about slavery, right? They, they always say, well, as long as we afforded slavery and it was, it was cheap enough, right? So we didn't have to invest into machines. The Industrial Revolution was held back. And when once we realized we, we, we grew a conscience, or maybe it was just cheap enough to grow a conscience, whatever that point was in time, we, we abolished slavery. And then, well, we had to automate, so we started the Industrial Revolution. That argument to say, if it's true, I'm actually not sure. But I feel like there is this argument that you need experience and you need to, to become um, an efficient worker through a job. And that's correct, right? But if your job is basically, it's, it's the, only, the only opportunity to rise from that menial job is to have a slightly less menial job. Maybe we are at the point where we say, well, we make it so expensive through what we've done, right? And so that's kind of what's going on in my heart is we, we, we make it so expensive that we either double the salary in, in these menial, low-paying jobs or we just automate them away and have people sitting at home. That's kind of what, what happens to most of us, I think, when we go through the next 20 years of AI growth. Well, automation is all around us. Uh, and we see it. You go to a McDonald's today and they don't have as many people working there anymore. You, you go and you push buttons on their thing of their menu, and yeah, you basically like order. Two people working at McDonald's. Two people. Yeah, and, there's literally nobody there anymore. Yeah, and and I, look, there, there's benefits to that because the people that created the kiosks for you to order, they're employed, they're making money, and uh, in their business, so everything changes some, in some ways, for the better. In yeah. our area, there are toll booths, or there used to be toll booths. Now it's all automated. Now it's just you drive through, you have your easy pass, and you're charged right like that. It, it, it eliminates a ton of traffic and time 
And, and that's what technology does. It eliminates time. It's easier to get something if you walk into a room and your lights turn on for you rather than you have to go and find a switch. That's the way, I mean, that's the most basic thing of how it works. And look, I, I think that the government, uh, I mean, I, if they really were uh, forward thinking, would really make uh, education, not necessarily college education, but education for these types of skills in the future to be more easily accessed and, and free. Let's teach people how to, how to, you know, create businesses, how to, you know, rise up and, and. Yeah, I like how you use this word. Yeah, I like how you use the word. It's a very, very socialist idea. They're, they're rising up of the masses, but the information is out there, right? So YouTube is free and then you can basically learn any skill you want off YouTube. I, I don't even, you can become a hedge fund manager just off YouTube, I feel like. But you need experience, right? But the skills, the basics, if you go around and sign up to all the newsletters, if you go around and take three years and do nothing else but learn about the financial industry, I think you will be pretty smart if you take it seriously. Well, there's a, I mean, think of it this way. There are, there are plumbers out there that will do, they'll have their own YouTube page and they will have how to unclog a, a drain or how to fix your dishwasher I've actually looked up things all the time yeah. of how to, you know, fix something. I, I had a dishwasher. Well, yeah. no, you can't do that. But I looking at um, do that, right. yeah. Well, I mean, I look. I think that YouTube uh, is uh, is amazing, and and you're right. I mean, my daughter is in college, and she looks up YouTube all the time for some of the the stuff that she's studying, and and how to interpret different things. I mean, and there's YouTube. YouTube stars out there that are making millions of dollars. They're creative. I mean, I, I'm a car fan and I look at car bloggers on, on YouTube and they're seeing a million hits on each of their videos. And, and that's actually real money that, uh, that YouTube and Google are paying them. And that, that's a business right there. And, and look, for me, I have a business. It's on the internet. Uh, I'm very active on Twitter. I, I have a lot of, of a decent following and I wouldn't have that if it was without you know the internet and finding people uh, out there uh, all over the world yeah you had a recent tweet where you uh, kind of put out guidelines how to become a hedge fund manager and if this is even something we should aspire to I'm, I'm curious about what, what you thought about doing that tweet storm okay um, <laughs> It's not easy to be a hedge fund manager, and it, it was a lot easier in the 90s or even in the early 2000s that there were really no barriers to entry. Two guys in a Bloomberg could, could launch one. I did. And the, the problem uh, today is that these have become uh, institutionalized, and the assets available for hedge funds has be, is, is more institutionalized. And the cost of starting and running a hedge fund is really prohibitive to the majority. And, and look, I, I launched uh, back in 2001 uh, with a shoestring budget. Uh, we, we found investors that gave us money, but it's really hard to scale. And the other thing that's happening, you wanna talk about wages? Wages at hedge funds are going down 
and they've been going down because the fees are going down. It used to be two and 20, and there are some managers still out there that they get you know, 2% and 40% or even more. Those are exceptions. It's now uh, less than 1% management fee or no management fee and 10% or, or less uh, for your incentive of what you make on top of it. Now, it's really hard to raise money because if you're a startup and you have, uh, okay, let's just, let's point out the, the ones that do well. These are managers that have managed money before. They have a track record. They're coming out of a big fund or they're coming from a Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or Credit Suisse or whoever, uh, and they have money behind them. Most likely, the managers that are starting this fund have millions of dollars that they are putting into their own fund. They're not only just putting money into their own fund, but they're putting money into the infrastructure. That infrastructure is having an office, having the legal uh, counsel, having the accountants, uh, hiring analysts before you're even generating income. And they, they're not making money the first couple of years. Now, here's the other thing. They, they know that if they uh, do well, which is a gamble, you know, because you could, you, could, you could come into a year, start at a year where nothing really works in your, with your strategy, and then it, it becomes rather difficult uh, for them. Uh, so there's a gamble there. And, and allocators. Okay, let's just talk about allocators. What's the better bet for them? Because an allocator, and these are, these are institutions that give money to hedge funds. Now, they have, they have their startup hedge fund list, and then they have their, their, their go-to big hedge fund institution that they give money to. Giving money to a startup hedge fund. Um, you better have uh, all your, you know, all your your list checked off of why you're giving it to them because you're taking a those allocators are taking a risk with their business, their reputation, their jobs, and 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 that so there's that's the that's the best case scenario. The the worst case scenario is that you have people that think, oh, I want to be a hedge fund manager. Okay. Uh, what's your qualification? Well, I've, you know, I've studied the markets. I've got a great track record. I, I've, you know, I made 150% over the last year trading my own account. How big is your account? Well, it's, you know, half a million dollars. Well, sorry, that doesn't necessarily work. Again, it takes a lot of money to start a hedge fund, a successful hedge fund, because the, the hedge funds have to generate income. They, you, and not only the performance, but you have to run a business. And that is what I think trips up a lot of people. And I, I will, I'm reminded of uh, a meeting I had with uh, Blackstone in 2001 when I was launching my phone. I, I came to New York and I met with a bunch of allocators. And they said, look, we want to see uh, at least a one-year track record. Uh, we, we can't be more than 10% uh, of your total assets. And we want to see the business acumen of what, of how you run your business. We don't care about, you know, I'm not talking about your, your performance because a good performance can be great one year and down the next year. And that down the next year is, is game over. So I, I've seen really successful hedge fund managers that I've seen carve out their own businesses after fail. And it's very, very tough. So the barriers to entry are tougher now. 
Uh, it's not impossible. And, you know, I know some smaller ones that have, have come through, but they also have had money behind them. They've got family money. They've got the assets to live off of while they're trying to scrape and make this business work. It's tough. It's yeah. very, very tough. And again, fees are lower, not incentivizing people to go out and start a new hedge fund. And it's really hard performance wise because the performance, I mean, okay, fine. The markets are up great this year. They're not always up great this every year. And the other thing is, if you look at the last 10 years or, or from the lows in March of 2009, it's been five stocks in the S&P that have led the market higher by 50%. If you took out Apple, Amazon, uh, Google, Facebook, uh, those, are, um, those are the ones that have ex exceeded all expectations. Now, are, is that going to happen over the next 10 years? And can you just put your money in those five stocks and say, okay, I'm going to knock it out? I don't think so. I think it's going to be a tougher road 10 years away. And oh, the other thing is, why would you put your money in a hedge fund when hedge funds are under underperforming the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ 100? So, so you have allocators that are thinking, where can I go? What strategies work in all markets? And that's that's a that's a difficult question. I think it's a very spot on analysis. I looked into becoming a hedge fund manager, starting a hedge fund myself a couple of years ago, and I, I saw exactly what, what you just said. It's very difficult to, to get this initial capital. You have to use your own money. You use your own money. It's, it's not designed, so it's not considered as scalable. Um, you, you, just because you trade a few million doesn't mean you can trade a few hundred million. So there's, uh, there's a lot of, of, and obviously because there is only a limited amount of supply of, of investors who are eager to go into these alternative assets and it's not seen as new and interesting anymore. It's something that has to have the benchmarks. And it's extremely bureaucratic. There's a lot of red tape. So I stayed away from it um, as far as I could. What I found interesting do is, and I'm not sure if that's still the case, but for a time, and that was a couple of years ago, if you automated trading strategies that are literally completely automated, that trade with a few million, doesn't have to be huge. And there's a ton of hedge funds who, who incubate these strategies and if you you don't have to give them the strategy you literally just get money to trade on their account so you, you, the money never goes to to you right so you got you're not a fiduciary you basically just trade on that account by inputting the trades so that's all you do that seems and they have full control they can pull it out within the second right within five seconds that seemed to be something that was relatively easy to get into if you have a bit of track record of a winning strategy that's mostly automated or, or not, it doesn't really matter where, why you trade. I felt that was pretty easy to get, well, a few million in allocation. Um, but that is, you're not a hedge fund, right? You're literally just someone who, who trades other people's money as a technology provider. So you change the name and the concept. It's kind of the same thing doing the end, but that seemed really easy. I mean, there was tons of people who were ready to say, well, we're going to put a million into that portfolio. It stays on their account, but you, you can play with it. Right. There, I, I actually like that model. And there are a lot of big hedge funds. I mean, SAC, Millennium, uh, others that, that they bring that, those portfolio managers in and analysts and they give them capital to run and they get a payout on that. Now, that, now that's, that's getting into one of those big funds and that's, that's ideal. Um, they're very strict on risk management and they can cut your allocation or cut you out pretty quickly. And I've seen that happen uh, way too many times. Uh, prop funds uh, are out there as well. 
uh, if you have a good strategy, you have something that 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 makes money, you know, they'll give you some money to to trade. Uh, a lot of times, there's quant uh, funds out there. I mean, look, quant funds. Uh, I'll give you a story. Strategies come and go. Uh, long short was great in the uh, early 2000s, and then people found out that people weren't really short. We were we were very short in. Uh, financial crisis, and we actually came out of 2008 flat on the air, which was a huge win. But quant funds were the rage several years ago, and we have a few here in Greenwich, and and, and I always like to see these these trends come and go. One you know summer afternoon, uh, we would just see all these guys wearing the AQR. Um, that was a big quant fund. Uh, the uh, uh, fleeces and hats, and they're all at the at the bar. And I was meeting a friend, uh, and they were they had, it was a private party, so we we're like, oh, we'll go somewhere else. So we went to another bar right up the street, and there were AQR people there having their own private party. And then across the street, there was another you know bastion of AQR people. Now AQR basically was peaking at that time, and they've lost tons of assets. Uh, it's it, it, a lot of those quant funds had the same models, you know. It's like, oh, we want to be long bonds, long stocks, um, and chop around here, and we'll make money. Uh, but it didn't work. But the problem is, yeah, the problem is that you, you, when you do these quant models, you have to figure out what kind of look back are you choosing. So, are you looking back twenty years if you have that much data? Are you looking back one year, six months? But and weirdly enough, with the, with the shortest look-back period, those are the ones that make the most money on a daily basis. And you're like, well, made money for the last couple of months, so it's a really great model, and you keep allocating more capital. But those are also the ones that are more, most fragile, right? So they probably work for right now, but it doesn't mean they will work in two years from now. And you feel like, oh, I can, I can retreat. I, I, I take the money out before something bad happens. I, I look at all the risk factors. But you don't, right? You think you—it's the, the the unknown unknown—and and Donald Rumsfeld's words: you don't know when you should pull out because everyone else obviously trades on similar models as well, and that builds up this huge fragility, and these things just drop 30 40 percent in a day, and or you can't get out at all because it's not liquid enough. Well, I, I I just picked up on one word you mentioned there a couple times: fragile. And investment firms, some you know, they're fragile. They're, they're, they're a, a living human or, you know, human intervention organism that can make mistakes, can get caught on the wrong side. And, and it's not really well known, but there are times and we, we've seen, not like the big giant pullback we saw in March of 2020, but other periods of bond market volatility that is just, it comes out of nowhere. And you're thinking, oh my God, you know, what just happened here? Well, it's a quant fund having a really bad day. And I, I have a few quant of uh, fund managers that I can, I can tell you that I've seen them where it was basically a, a normal market week, but the bond market had like some big hiccup and they all got caught up and, and they look like white as a ghost when you see them. And, and it's like, it's, it's, yeah. things are fragile and it's hard. It, strategies come and go. And it's, it's the multi-strat uh, type of funds that I think are the most durable. So I've seen, you know, look at SAC. SAC uh, does exceptionally well. They've got their, they've got, it's an institution now. They have the traditional long short. They've got some quant. They've got private equity. They've got crypto. They've got all these, you know, 
you name it, they have it. And that's why their returns are fairly steady. And, and that's what an allocator or an investor really wants. You know, oh, I, I always, I always get, I always feel very suspicious if, if it's too, you know, it's like the Bernie Madoff model. It's too close to 5% every year. I get very suspicious because something seems, not, maybe it's the accounting, but, or maybe everything is fine, but I get really suspicious when I see this really nice flattened out returns that are slightly above the average every year. Yeah, well, I, the Bernie Madoff model, um, I can tell you that I remember right before our firm shut down, that was right when Bernie Madoff had blown up. Or maybe it was a year before when he blew up, but... I think that Bernie Madoff was trying to get one of our founders to invest into his into his fund, and my guy was just like, "Yeah, well, we'll see," you know. And and they sent this this like sheet of returns, and I think I, I, the founder uh, framed it and put it in his office, just like this this perfect return. Yeah. And yeah, when it's too good, uh, you know, sometimes too good a performance is uh, concerning. I once had an allocator when we were sitting down um, when he was doing his due diligence. He, he said, look, I, I need to get 11% return. Uh, this is the return I want to see from you guys. And our returns were generally in double digits. Uh, again, you know, 2008, we're flat, which I was thrilled. But then we went out to... Um, to for, After work, we, you know, he wanted to meet us and hang out. And so we went at and had drinks and he said look all i really need is seven percent because if it's above seven percent i don't lose my job and that was kind of like the truth be told you know hey i, I want this eleven percent but hey seven percent i'm cool you know just staying steady but um yeah. you know there's there's pressure on all walks of of out there and the other thing is leverage you know we talked about people leveraging with with crypto you know, there, this Archegos uh, blew up with this obscene amount of leverage out there. And I still think there's a lot of leverage still out there in the markets. And that is maybe the biggest concern I have over the near term. Uh, I also think that sell-side firms, the Goldman's, the Morgan Stanley's, Credit Suisse, obviously, uh, Nomura's are taking down uh, the amount of leverage that they're giving their, their accounts. And, and we weren't a really heavily levered firm. I mean, I think we, we, we were double levered um, at, at, at times, but I mean, the amount of money that, that some firms have extended and, and it's opaque as well. Nobody really knows how much leverage is out there, especially if you're using multiple prime brokers and, oh, you know, you're, it's like taking a second mortgage at five different banks on your, your house and putting it into yeah, think about Robinhood, you know, which you felt like they they, they use the retail um, margin model. And I, th I think it's a 3x or 4x, but it's been used by every single retail bank for a long time. And it blew up in their face, right? I think they had to raise $5 billion over a weekend just because these, these they, they, everyone traded on, on a very few stocks. And these stocks, they, they, there was no pricing anymore, right? So they jumped like 100% in a matter of minutes. And yeah, they didn't even know how to close these trades anymore. I don't think that's the whole January issue, right? The back, the back office issue. Oh, you know, Robinhood uh, deserved every, you know, painful thing that happened to them because basically this has been a year of the new investor. You've had so much new money coming into the market and with the mentality, I'm going to get rich. I'm going to buy 
uh, GameStop, and you know it's going to double for me overnight. And Robinhood uh, would you know send the confetti. You know you just bought GME, and here do you want to you you can double up the amount that you can you can trade with leverage. You know it's margin. Nobody really knows the risks of margin until you know the risks of margin. Yeah, but it's an SEC model because they didn't make up the margin models, right? It's it's it, it's supposedly safe and has been around for forever, forty years. So I don't know when when it was when the when the, the fine tuning was done, but they didn't they didn't give people more leverage than they should, right? So it was all within the, the federal mandated uh, margin. Well, they, but, but you're right. You're right. They didn't give more than they should. Uh, as far as the legal aspect, but they were giving leverage uh, to investors who were unsophisticated. And they and look, they let's hey, you want to trade options? We filled out options form. too. Yeah. And yes, you know That's what, how this what, works. What, yeah. What, what but, happened? But I think everyone should have access to this. I never understood why we make why we exclude people from the investment options. And um, I was talking to Jesse, and I think it was Jesse. We, we talked about all these options that you can only use if you have. I think it's an IDA account. I forgot what the specific term is, but there's a lot of things. The startup investments that you couldn't do, and now there's crowdsourcing. But there's lots of like, if you want to buy CDSs, where do you go? I called my bank, and I called. I actually called Chase and said, "Where can I buy CDSs?" And they looked at me like I'm crazy. Like yeah, there's so many cool yeah. things that have low, that have very nice convexity, and you can't get access to them on a retail basis. So I think what Robinhood initially set out to do is is very laudable. We, we shouldn't we shouldn't laugh at them. Because I think it's great. Obviously, it became a business, and it's not the same thing anymore. But if we we should expose retail investors as much as we can to any kind of financial instrument. Now, obviously, we'll blow up in their faces, but they can learn from those, right? Why shouldn't they? It's better than well, hiding it. You, you know the okay. Besides the margin issue, which I I, I think um, it, it was it was an issue for them. Everything was concentrated in GameStop. That. That that period. So when you have uh, so many people uh, invested in one stock that is moving just parabolically and then dropping uh, massively uh, in the same day, and and even worse after hours. And I, I was, um, I mean, when 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 it would go up forty or fifty percent or more after hours, or it dropped, you know, that's when the models broke. Because you, you you couldn't have people naturally getting out of a position. Uh, it, it was the market was closed for a lot of people, and you couldn't. You know what are you going to do? Um, but when it opens up down a hundred percent, or or not a hundred percent, but down fifty percent, which it did, that's when I think the uh, that's when I think things broke because then it was like immediate people are out, and and look, it's the the, because it, with those gaps, it wasn't just a clean, you know, up and down and, and you have a margin call. No, it, these were gaps and they were on the hook uh, because those small investors that put 10,000 up, they borrowed 20,000 and they were now down a lot more than the initial 10 or 10,000. Uh, that's, you know, that, that was on them. And that's why they needed to raise money. And, and look, I hope they learn. And, and I'm happy people are, are more people are investing. My kids are investing. They're doing things. They're learning about uh, markets, and it's it's a great thing. The problem is it came very late in the cycle, and a lot of people have made money, and a, a lot of people have made money too easily, and and that's that's 
the get rich quick type of thing that I think is prevalent uh, right now. Which you know that works. It's, it's always when the valuations are highest, the most investors are around, kind of by definition, right? And then when yeah. the valuations are really interesting, then nobody wants to buy anymore. Otherwise, they wouldn't even have gotten there. When, when you think about fund managers, and you touched on a couple of them, who are people you feel like they have, they have figured out their own way, so they don't just go from quarter to quarter. And they, they're doing not just great performance, but they, they really add their personality um, to their fund management. Who, who do you admire in that business? Well, I think the, the I mean, a lot of managers um, have great people underneath them and great analysts and, and build great teams. And, and I think that's really the core of what makes a fund manager great. It's not just one guy on top that calls all the shots. Stan Druckenmiller, if you look at his record over the long term and how he invests and how he he can be very, very aggressive and take big positions in something that he feels a lot of conviction. And I know people that uh, that know Stan and work for Stan and Stan gets very excited when he has an idea that, that he likes. Uh, a friend of mine uh, turned him on to farming and buying farms uh, in the mid two, uh, 2000s. Uh, the, the, he, he was so excited, he bought farms and he did all this stuff and, and they did exceptionally, exceptionally well. Uh, he's very passionate about uh, his views on the economy, inflation, what the Fed's doing. And I think that if people haven't seen some of the, the talks that Stan has done recently, he did one for USC uh, Business School it's really revealing of what his views on inflation and what the Fed is doing right now. So I have a lot of respect for him. Um, I also have a lot of respect for Paul Tudor Jones. Um, I've been fortunate uh, to know Paul. And I, I think that uh, one of the things that's most impressive about Paul, besides having just a great long-term track record, is that he's a very honest guy. He is super balanced in his life and it, you know he's got a great family he's he's uh i see him taking walks in the neighborhood he's always you know clear-headed does yoga he's uh he's very measured and and he assembles smart people around him as well now he's a little less is well maybe he's a little more involved but because i think that uh, he's moved to florida he's changed his fund around and I think that he's still, uh, you know, outperforming the markets. He's he invested in crypto uh, a while back, and he sees the benefits of it. And I, I think he's a a great model for people. He's the most generous person uh, on Wall Street. He's raised more money with Robinhood, the foundation, uh, more than any other foundation I know in the world. He genuinely cares about uh, society. And he's created uh, models of looking at companies, which he calls uh, just capital, which are companies that not only are good, solid companies, but they have an ESG uh, element. They're good to their employees. Uh, they're good for the environment. You know, a lot of things that the model uh, the, the model finds. So he, he's he's a person that uh, you know. He also with with Robinhood, a lot of foundations bringing all this money, they have overhead, 
uh, Paul and a few others are that they, they underwrite Robin Hood's uh, foundation expenses. So 100% of all the money that's raised, and, and we're talking, you know, events that raise $50 million on a night. Uh, there's one coming up in June. It, and that all goes to kids' schools, uh, the, the New York City school system, homeless. Uh, it, it, he's He is a good, well-rounded person. That's what I think is uh, misjudged about the perception of people on Wall Street. Um, there are a lot of people that are exceptionally generous, uh, exceptionally uh, motivated to help society uh, with their wealth and put in time and effort and money. So those are the ones that I really find um, the, the best, that, that they build great businesses around them. Um, they bring in the best talent and they just continue to knock it out every year. And you don't necessarily hear about the, their performance from quarter to quarter or anything like that. They just tend to keep moving in the right direction. So there are there are, there are definitely um, some up and coming people out there in the world, and you know we'll see how they perform as you know good citizens as they do well uh, and they join likes of Robin Hood and, and, and build that foundation more for society. So I'm, I'm really impressed by those two. And I think if anybody wants to be a hedge fund manager or a trader or portfolio manager, any place, or just a money manager, uh, those are people that, that have done well for others with their experience. So they're always giving back. Yeah, the financial industry is not necessarily known for producing well-rounded personalities. Let's put it this way. At least well, some, popular, I will tell you popular this. conceptual. Yeah, well, there, there's a lot of them out there that, and I've met some that are totally off the rails. And, yeah. and those people... <laughs> it seems to attract that, that character, right? It seems to be um, like, you know, we know there's certain characteristics that help you be a better actor, be an exceptional actor, let's put it this way. So you, you, you're a bit leaning certainly towards the sociopath angle. It doesn't have to be, I mean, it doesn't mean you are one, but it seems the financial industry, you're, you're, it, it attracts very intense characters. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking of Michael Moke, who supposedly basically slept three years most of the nights, and then he, he started calling people at 4 a.m. and doing deals at 7 a.m. and doing this all night. Um, so I feel this this is a certain you gotta outcompete, you gotta really have to prove something to the world and you gotta really lay, go through the labor also. So there's a there's a lot of and, and you, as that fleshiness usually helps, right? In spending but also in personality. And oh, the, I feel really attracted to the they're attracted to the financial industry. Yeah, the, the, I will say all the people the people I'm I'm talking about and I just spoke to um they do have that trait of they want to kill it. And I, I know others that have that same mentality. I've worked for them that, that, that when they walk in the office in the morning, uh, you better have everything that you need to give them uh, so that they can have the day they want. And they can have moods, that, mood swings that are absolutely terrifying. Uh, I, I tend to be a, you know, one that keeps a very even keel. I have a low heart rate. Um, I, I do my job and you know know what I need to do, but there are those people out there that are so so intense. So if you yeah if you want to be a hedge fund manager, learn to be completely intense and crazy and and take huge risk and 
not flinch. I mean, I, I would have uh, trading on our desk, you know, uh, PM say sell 500 cues. And, you know, this is like five minutes after the market closed after, you know, big earn tech earnings or something. Sell 500,000 triple cues. I'd have to call Goldman Sachs and say, you got to stop me within five cents of the last print. And that that's like intensity from him to me to go to Goldman and they'd do it. They'd use their capital and we'd get it done. So there's a certain amount of intensity and you got to be a little bit ruthless, but you know, you know, I had to work the street pretty hard uh, working our orders, but I would always, you know, a day or two later, make it up and give them some trades and say, you know, here, thanks. I appreciate it. There was a give and take that I think uh, from the buy side and sell side that should exist, but, but you're right. The typical hedge fund manager. Yeah. Intense. And look, they've got a lot at stake. Absolutely. Do you feel that's that's a bit of a short-term optimization? So as a, we know, um, there is a lot of randomness involved in the financial industry, and you have to, you're being measured and benchmarked all the time, which doesn't necessarily happen in other industries as much. Do you think that it's just this short-term optimization to hit it out of the park for like three years and then basically retire is seemingly the better strategy than doing this, which is a Warren Buffett strategy, right? Finding something that will compound it 11% for the rest of your life, because that will make so much money that you're the richest person on earth, even if you buy, I don't know, a cigarette manufacturer. I don't even know if it was, it was a mill, right? Berkshire Hathaway was a terrible right. company. No, Berkshire they Hathaway was, they, 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 they made dress shirts. They made dress shirts. Oh, yeah. 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 And it failed. So, I mean, but, Yes, I mean, a lot of the company, that was the whole idea, right? It was his stick to, to buy these, these cigarette butts, right, in the beginning. But he found, he, he, he always optimized, and he only really got started in his 30s, right? But he optimized on the long term. That's why he got rich when he was really old. But I think for most hedge fund managers, a bit like, like startup entrepreneurs, they have a similar um, um, view on this. They get two years of runway or a year of runway, and they better hit it big because otherwise, well, they didn't even try. That's how they feel. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. Um, you know, there's a lot of pressure um, when a fund launches, and you know the the pressure is also benchmarked against what the market does. So right now, uh, it would be pretty tough in, in an environment like this in the last. If you've launched in the last year to be outperforming the S and P 500 or, or the Nasdaq, it'd be tough. It'd be really tough. But that makes people you know, work harder, uh, concentrate positions a little more to optimize their performance. Uh, and I don't think that there's the, those types of managers that make it big in three years and then say, you know, I'm, I'm going to the Hamptons. No, I think that after three years, if you're doing it and you're successful, you're scaling, you're going to scale, you're going to get more allocators that see that, 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 that you did well over that past three years and they're going to say, I want to be a part of this. So after three years, it's actually two, but probably three is better. They're going to, they're going to be more than happy to give you money. So it takes three years of grinding it out and then stick with your, with what, you know, don't change strategies. Yeah. Just yeah. keep going. Sounds like a startup, right? So three years and then you want to look at the IPO if you can, right? Um, if you have that option. Um, when you look at hedge funds right now, what what do you feel 
our A and maybe your asset classes that nobody looks into. You just mentioned farms um, a couple of years back. Nobody looked at farms and they developed mm -hmm. nicely. What is something a lot of people think about that, about alternative data? So they basically look at data that doesn't, it's not typically financial data, it's data that's sourced from somewhere completely different, and then you use this to trade on, you find patterns. Um, that's a quant thing, but it, it, it really ex expands this whole idea of what a quant can do, because this data could be, could be farming data, it could be how many cows you, you, you draw from satellite pictures, how many cows are out there, that's, that's your trading strategy. <laughs> I make this up, but there is a lot of stuff being done satellite imagery. Um, what do you feel is, is really cool right now that a lot of people attach a lot of hope to to have outsized returns from? Well, I think that a lot of money is going towards the crypto space right now. And I, I think that the ones that are going to survive are, are going to be the ones that can manage the volatility. And that's tough because you're going to have to be short some crypto that, that you know is not going up. And that's that's very, very tough. I think the, there are several places right now that I, I, I think the market uh, may come back to. And I, the reason I say it is because this period of time reminds me of two, 2000, 2001, where we had this you know, sensational boom, and then we had this bust. And my view right now is that the long, short equity hedge funds, uh, that model is actually has been out of favor because, hey, I'm going to buy the S&P and no problem. That model of a two-way portfolio, long and short, uh, is going to come back. And I think there's a lot of um, assets out there, a lot of stocks that are just, they make no sense. No sense at all for the prices where they're at. And if you have smart, fundamental, and let's say, you know, timing-wise, technical people that are on your team, you're going to be able to find those ideas. And again, you know, we've had a we've had a 10-year run of five stocks leading the market higher, and the attribution for those top five stocks is over 50% of the total gain. So, what happens if an Apple, which is not necessarily priced at the low end of its valuation range, it starts to top out? And, you know, you just start, I mean, look, they print money. It's the best company in the world. Uh, let's just say they top out and they just, you know, lose a little favor as far as um, the, the investor. Or what about Amazon? You know, I, everybody loves these companies. I love them. They're great companies. I use them all the time. But what if these companies, these stocks, just start to go sideways? What if we start to lose some of that uh, freedom that they've had? What if, they, what if there's more antitrust and, and that, that around the world that, that looks at these companies and say, hey, you're a $2 trillion company. You're just, your power is, um, is, is too much. Now, they're not necessarily a monopoly in the true sense, but if they start raising prices or they start uh, shutting off certain places, I mean, Apple's in a lawsuit right now with Epic Games. That's going to be interesting to see how that happened, what happens there with their app store. Uh, but I think that these these main stocks um, could come into uh, difficulty, and if that happens, I think the market will sputter. Now, I think there's great places in the market that are undervalued. I think energy. I think there's financials out there that that are undervalued, and and energy is picking up a lot of uh, investors this year. They've done well. Actually, I think energy's done the best 
of all sectors, there's some small cap areas. But I think the long short portfolios uh, are gonna be uh, the place to be. And I think there's gonna be a lot of companies out there that are gonna be uncovered as just complete frauds or overvalued and just like the, you know, basically like 2000 when you had tech, the tech bubble burst. I think that could easily happen again. Yeah, I think that's a, that's spot on. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of potential volatility. Let's put it this way. I think, and that's I'm I'm really um, I'm curious when when we look at and a lot of people play with volatility strategies. This kind of became um, a, a trend the last couple of years because we had these these pops in in, in volatility. The 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 VIX the the measurement for for volatility seems extremely low. I saw it and might have risen a little since then. It was down to, to the teens, right? It was 12, 13. I'm like, holy smokes! It really, we we think of these extreme valuations that can easily burst, and the the the, the implied volatility is so low. And you can you can play with this really nicely. You can just bet on next six months, the next 12 months, we see at least some higher volatility. For me, that seemed like free money. And I don't know where it is now. Maybe it has risen already. But that well, seems to be, it cannot, cannot stay that low for long. Right. The VIX has been pretty, actually, you know, when it, when I think in the pre-COVID, it was in the low teens, maybe like 12 or, or something. Yeah. And it went, you know, skyrocketing up. And, um, and it's been fairly steady around 20. And I mean, maybe that's a little, the new regime, that's more elevated. Maybe there's still some fear out there in the market. You know, you have this dynamic of fear and greed. And I, I, I think that there are people now starting to show some hedges in the market. You had this extreme call buying last year um, with, yeah. with the people that, you know, I'm going to buy calls and, you know, that's, that's like buying stock for some people until they learned uh, when things, you know, the bottom fell out and it, their calls didn't work. But I think there's going to be more volatility when, I don't know, I think that we could see um, something, it's, it's, it's calm right now. It's very calm. The bond market's fairly steady. Uh, it, it, the rates have gone up and they've backed off and they really haven't backed off that much. And so they're kind of elevated. And if we do have inflation and we do have some inflation issues and Look, we're going to have more bondish, you know, the the bond issuance uh, over the next six months or even longer is going to be huge. We've got to pay for all this stuff. And how are you going to entice investors to invest in bonds? You got to have higher higher rates and a better um, risk reward right now. And you know, you had Ray Dalio. There's a ton of investors. I'm I'm always amazed. There's a ton of investors who are really going for 03 0.5, 0.6% interest rates. Some of them over a long time frame. I'm like, holy smokes, how is that possible? How is an economy? And so many investors, how are they happy about extremely low prospects? Like, and they must, must have thought about inflation. They know inflation could spike up and their money goes down by 5% in value every year. How can they commit to such long-term, low-yielding trades? Is Do you think that's a mindset issue or that's that's just... They do it only for short-term um, investment. How is it even possible? It still okay. boggles my mind. I know it's been going on for a long time. <laughs> well, uh, so it's like we lost things. faith in ourselves, right? And, well, and, and future growth. Look, the 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 bottom line is, people aren't buying bonds for the yield. No, no they're not. There's yeah. that's not the that's not the game. People are buying stocks for the yield. 
people are buying bonds for the capital appreciation because they believe rates will continue to go lower. So that's been the game. The bond, the 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 uh, risk parity uh, strategies have done exceptionally well over the well until they until rates lifted, because they were long bonds, they were long stocks, and when that turned around and rates started to rise, uh, the price of their their bonds, which the yield didn't matter, uh, started to move you know easily against them hard. Now there's another thing, um, I, I, I'm. So it's a speculative maniac in bonds, so to speak. Well, we, you know what? We, we bet on the lowering of future interest rates. I, I don't know, know if it's necessarily speculative, but I, I did uh, speak yeah. with um, some uh, an allocator, one of the big global allocators at uh, Blackstone last couple of years. And, and I sat down with them and I, I said, why are your European managers buying bonds, neg negative yielding uh Rates? Why are you know what's? <laughs> I I see a risk here, and they, he said, you know, it's very simple. They they are mandated to buy bonds. That's number one, and number two, they think um, the 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 bond prices will continue to rise, no matter even if they're negative yielding. So that was right there. They said, okay, we're buying bonds because we want capital appreciation, and we think that's going to happen. Um, going yeah. forward and and yeah it makes no sense i think negative yielding bonds has been one of the worst uh experiments uh, ever um in, in the markets i think that when that backs up when you see uh the amount of uh negative yielding bonds i think there's about 13 trillion dollars worth of negative yielding bonds in the world it was 18. But aren't they already negative right because the, the, the inflation was always somewhere around 1.5 2.5 percent in the last couple of years so even if you get one percent yield it would be negative so to speak well yeah the real yield of course but the the point is that we had at the peak i believe 18 trillion dollar 18 trillion dollars in negative yielding debt around the world and, that, and a lot of it is in asia in japan uh, in europe and as yields and rates have you know, seen them rise uh, around the world, uh, that's dropped down to about $13 uh, trillion. And, and we chart that all the time. So that's a, that's a dynamic there that there's a lot of trillions that have uh, evaporated as far as the gains that these portfolio managers had. Now, if, if the, the big risk, in my opinion, and, and this is, this is the, the risk I think of, uh, that everybody's watching is if, if rates start to move up uh, fast and un in an unruly way, uh, that will that will really put uh, every single market at risk. Because if one market in particular, and they're all in a chain, if one chain link breaks, you're going to see selling uh, across the board. Because you have multi-strat managers, you have people that are in stocks and bonds, and if bonds are getting killed. Uh, you're, they're going to take down some risk in stocks as well. It's not going to just rotate into stocks or some yeah. other place. And I think that's the big risk. If it's an unruly, fast, sharp move, if we see the U.S. 10-year rate over 2%, um, uh, 25 basis points mm -hmm. in a day, I think that's that would scare some people. If it moves even more, I think it's going to scare a lot of people. And, and the valuations and especially – on all these tech stocks and these bubble stocks, um, well, obviously the, the, they'll get they'll get hit. You know, one thing also that the Fed may 
be saying, look, we're going to, we're cool with inflation. We're not going to touch our strategy. We're not going to do anything because they know that it's actually uh, put some uh, strain on the tech, you know, a lot of stuff that's been bubblicious. And so maybe they're looking at it like, okay, you know, we can just live with, you know, some higher rates uh, if it takes down some of the bubble and it pops or it just deflates a little, not pops. We don't want pops. They don't want pops. They never so want what, what, what are you saying? If, if say rates rise relatively quickly to three or 4%, there's a lot of leverage positions that we're betting on higher prices in, in those low yielding bonds and they could have to would have to unwind and in order to do so they sell their portfolio relatively broad and we would see 30 40 50 percent in, in in stock prices going down that's a potential portfolio if the rates go up so quickly because people I, have to leave these positions sooner or later yeah i mean look there's another you know again there's leverage out there in the markets and and you know when leverage has to get unwound um quickly as we yeah. saw with Archegos, um, and that was a very small piece of the market with uh, very few stocks. Uh, everybody's gross comes down, their, their exposures come down and and boom, we got to sell across the board. The, the prime brokers uh, that are managing or you know the holding the, the uh, levered bets, uh, whether it's any asset, they're gonna tell their clients, okay, you've got to cut your exposures ASAP right now, or we're going to do it. And it just, that snowballs. And that, that's essentially what, what happened uh, in 2008. You had exposures way too high. People had to take down leverage and they were forced to because the banks that were holding all those things were running out of cash and they, they needed to tell people delever, delever, delever. And forced delevering is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's game over for, the market. So maybe they're taking down leverage right now uh, in a, in a soft way uh, after what's happened. I've seen uh, a few uh, people I know uh, that ran prime brokerages uh, move on, move on. And they, 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 you know, they're changing things right now at the, at the big prime brokerages. Yeah. I have a non-financial question for you. Okay. I, I know you like the Grand Tour and talking, right? The TV show. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite episode? And they do a lot of road trips, right? Um, and well, I'm a big fan of, of the TV show too. I think they really combine a, a couple of different different uh, themes very well. Well, what do you think is is what do you like about the show? What's your favorite road trip that they took? I like the ones where, okay, there was one that they did with supercars on these Swiss roads. And I, I don't know yeah. exactly the roads and they went to, through the Italian Alps, through these, I think it's a Zocalon, uh, it's a switchback. And it just was fabulous. It was great. There was no con. No cars on the road, helicopter views that were awesome. I also, I also like when they, when they get in trouble. Like I remember the, the, when they go to certain countries and they get arrested or some, you know, they, they, they do something just completely off the wall. That's so wrong in that particular country. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a great show. I, I, you know, it, the, the, there's one also where I forget who was driving it, but they were driving an electric supercar. 
um, forget which one, but he went off the road and it caught on fire and it was just like a complete, you know, $2 million car poof, you know, that they just destroyed. But I, you know, my favorite part of Top Gear is when they bring the celebrities or race drivers and they put them on the track to, you know, take the ordinary car around the track and they time them. I love that. I mean, I would love to do that. And, you know, you've seen Lewis Hamilton and uh, Sebastian Vettel and, and all the big drivers go on the show and compete. And some of those guys have done so well when it's raining. And that just tells you the, the type of driver compared to a, a typical actor uh, that, that goes on it and tries to do well in the dry. So it's, uh, these drivers are a step ahead. Yeah. It's, it's, and it's very difficult. I think it's a format that's, that's, that's not easy to, to make successful. And they, they've been honing it in for a very long time, right? And uh, I think the, the, a lot of travel photography, travel stories, um, things that about cars, um, they're, they're often, they're neither funny nor interesting. They're like, like a constant product placement, right? They, they will either by the, the, the country or by the automotive manufacturer. So they, they've combined a lot, a couple of different um, elements and actually created something entertaining that especially works when, when you see the three of them together. They have their own well, shows. I don't consider them very entertaining when they're by themselves. Yeah, like, like Jeremy, what Jeremy, Jeremy Clarkson, uh, you know, he, he's the most, you know, brash of them all. Yeah. And there's, you know, another thing that makes the show um, so great is that they've also come out and said, this car is awful. You know, they've said it's just, you know, they hate it. And when they do like a car, they just have such great emotion over it. Like, you know, I remember Jeremy's driving this uh, single seat car. No, it's double seat car, but it's open. It's called an aerial atom. And it's just a, it's like a, like a, a go-kart and it's so fast and it shows his face and it's just shaking and, you know, with the, the wind hitting his face. And it just, it's, it's, you know, it's amusing when you see that type of stuff. But I, I, I again, I think it's a, all the different car bloggers on YouTube. Uh, oh, those guys, the, they were the first to do it. Now you can see so many different people on YouTube and you can follow them. They go around the world. They're driving supercars. They're, you know, there's so many people. And Instagram, uh, again, is, you know, really leading the charge. You see people... Uh, there's a guy named Tim Burton. He goes by Shimmy 150, and he's my favorite. He's this British guy. He's nice. He's proper. He's created a great business for himself, and he goes around the world. He owns McLaren Senna's. He owns all these, you know, fabulous cars that he's, he goes to the factories. He drives them. Uh, he tells his honest opinion. He just bought a Porsche Taycan, uh, the, the nicest one, and he just, you know, with an electric vehicle, it's new for him. And he said, he, he just had like total anxiety over range, ranging anxiety, which is a, a thing that happens with uh, electric vehicle owners. And, and that's yeah. something uh, he's gone around and you can't get the charger to work. It's, it's been interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's something I feel the, the, we talked about really driven people in the financial industry, right? That really want to kill it. I feel like they, 
there is a reward they're thinking of, right? It's, it's this, this, this appreciation from other people, obviously. But it's also, what do you do with all this money, right? Because you obviously don't need it. But it's, it's I think the, the Grand Tour really exemplifies this. If you have all this money, this is what you could do, right? This is what your life could be. And uh, you just said it, some people on YouTube have already, they, they, they shortcutted this, right? They didn't go through the whole financial industry. They said, well, no, I'm just, I'm just going to start after this and try to pull it off on YouTube. Yeah, they and I they find do. That interesting, right? So the millennials or the, the generation after them thinks of this slightly different, right? They they want the reward sooner. They they don't go through a career of working as a hedge fund manager or in the financial industry. Yeah. They just want the reward in the next two years. And and remember, you know, when you when you want to become a hedge fund manager, you just can't be one. You have to go through the steps. And yeah. I had a uh, conversation with someone the other day that a young person and you know, they, he wants to be a hedge fund manager or work for a hedge fund. Or, and I always have people email me, you know, how do I get started? What do I do? And, and I always, you know, what, how do I get started on Wall Street? I'm like, go to law school, be a lawyer, because that's the most steady gig on Wall Street. But uh, to be a trader, there's not many traders now, a lot of algorithms. That, that, that sort of technology has taken um, away a lot of trading jobs and most of the trading jobs. Uh, especially at sell side firms, it's just ten percent of the the desks are filled now with the uh, traders at Goldman or Morgan Stanley or wherever. And becoming a portfolio manager, I think the best uh, approach to that is to, okay, first of all, go to a good college. Okay, you can, business school is a great place to start. Uh, you learn about business. You meet contacts, and and that's important. Uh, CFA is great. I took level one. I passed at level one. Uh, I didn't go back for level two because I got hired at a hedge fund. This is, you know, 1999. And uh, I learned plenty. Um, and I didn't really feel like studying for a whole year and being away from my family. Uh, that was just, no, no thanks. I'm good. But, you know, having those credentials uh, may or may not be needed, but it's also going to be when someone's reading your resume, they're going to say, oh, he went here, he did this, that, this, and maybe he worked at a sell-side firm, investment banking, he under, understands how to model portfolios. Uh, that's going to get you in the door. And, and, and in the other ways, if you know someone or if you have money, uh, it can get you in the door. You could start at the low, low end of it and build your way up. But you got to be a success at that place and move to the next stage. You know, you could be a trader, you can move up to a portfolio manager, do well as a portfolio manager, and then uh, go out on your own. And that's a, you know, that's a, that's a very fine few amount of people that are able to do that, to able to scale uh, their business to make it profitable for them and worthwhile. I mean, it's a lot of people would be just very happy working for Third Point or SAC or, or anywhere where it's a very steady model they're getting paid great. You know, you don't have to be the, the, the main guy. It's, it's, it's hard. It's hard yeah. to stay well, there. There's a whole debate about will these careers, will people still have careers in 20 years from now? Is that even, is that even something for the majority of the next generation that will still exist? But that's, that's a whole other debate. Thomas, I got to go. I got to okay. go. Thanks so much for taking the time. It was awesome. It was great. It was great. Thanks, Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. All right. Talk to you soon. Take it easy. Bye, Thomas.